0: We're building new DeFi protocols that have never existed before, ever in the space, that actually not only competes against CeFi in significant ways, but it can do it faster, cheaper, and more effectively with full transparency.
1: All righty, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is presented by our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. Today is December nineteenth, and we've got a great interview coming at you for with uh, Chad Bearford, one of the developers of Thorchain. Uh, in light of all the recent uh, centralized exchange drama, it's a great conversation around the importance of cross-chain decentralized exchanges. We really get into like the details of, of what Thorchain is, how it works on the protocol level. Uh, I tried to poke at some of like the more risky side of the protocol as well, and uh, you know Chad had some great responses of kind of like what they're building and why they're building it. Uh, but before we get into that interview, we're joined today by ZeroX Pibbles and Westies from the BlockWorks research team to discuss the latest market happenings. Uh, there's definitely a lot to unpack with the, uh, this week and kind of, you know, just the past couple of months in crypto as a whole. Uh, but we can dive right into things. Uh, just, Sam, you want to kick us off? What do you got in the hot seat this week?
2: Yeah, the hot seat's pretty easy this week. We've got uh, basically dcg and barry silbert he finally kind of broke his silence earlier today on twitter and we're recording on the 19th of december just for the listeners in case this goes a little bit stale by the time it publishes on wednesday but he tweeted that there's a potential uh tender offer that they might be engaging in in order to try and basically decrease the discount that gbtc trades to nav by offering to buy back some of the shares on the open market i think it's up to 20 percent um with um capital uh, in order to try and kind of provide more value to shareholders because last time i checked it's trading at about a 48 percent discount to nav so this would be a way to kind of even out that spread my one question is just if dcg is in a liquidity crunch i don't understand how they have the spare capital to actually repurchase those shares from shareholders at a predetermined price for a specified window of time um, to me, you know, I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter about maybe they liquidate some of their Bitcoin or ETH holdings outside of the actual trust because it's not clear if they could liquidate parts of it in order to raise capital. Um, so, yeah, that's that's an easy hot seat. We're all still watching that one pretty closely. Not really sure how it's going to play out, but definitely got the hot seat for the week. Yeah.
1: Welcome back. Barry Silbert on this one. It was uh, the silence was deafening from him and. Uh, you know, I guess this is kind of ultimately the direction it seemed like it was going. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's maybe somewhere in the middle, you know, we're kind of really uh, yet to be seen at what the true market impact of this will be. But uh, this kind of feels like the last domino. Uh, and of course, I feel terrible saying that, you know, it's the classic, how much worse can it really get. But, you know, I feel like we're like a couple months out from actually uh, having the bottom in terms of, of what can go wrong. So it's good to get, you know, some of these final resolutions getting closer.
3: Here's some speculation on where that money's coming from to buy it back. If you look at the uh, the berry coins and you chart those, you've got like Filecoin, Nier, Mana, or is it Sand, one of those? They are all down horrifically this past week. So uh, that's definitely where some of the money's coming from they're scrambling for cash.
2: Yeah, I actually saw those charts. I think it was on Friday night that he dumped those too. Like everyone going into the weekend, literally no trading volume. So I, that's a good uh, a good theory there, Pibbles. I didn't really even consider that at all. I had already forgotten about it uh, over the weekend, but yeah, not much else to say on that front considering you know, the situation still unfolding. So Westy, I'll pass it over to you so you can give uh, your hot seat for the week.
4: Yeah, definitely. Uh, my hot seat, I have Ren which is a pretty popular wrapped asset protocol. Um, and so uh, their main asset is REN BTC, allowing you to use essentially Bitcoin's price action on Ethereum. And they announced, I don't know if it was a week ago, pretty recently that they were gonna shut down their uh, mainnet. And this sort of caused a, a couple issues. And first is around obviously the REN assets. I think there's still $15 million in assets, uh, outstanding for REN, and so this is assets once they shut down, I think it's on Tuesday this week, uh, that's assets that are essentially gonna go to zero. And so users are basically encouraged to bridge their assets back to the, the primary chain that they're on and uh, get their value back. But it's also uh, bad for its implications on curve pools. I know RUN BTC was used in a lot of different sort of wrapped asset pools within curve. Um, and this also brings up the question um, like, can wrapped assets work uh, in the long term? Or do we need to go with something like Thorchain, uh, where it's essentially native to native bridging from one chain to the other with actual native assets as opposed to wrapped assets? Um, so I'm wondering... Yeah, what, what do you guys think about this this Ren situation?
1: Yeah, they uh, Ren kind of got punched in the mouth, in the, the FTX Alameda washout. Um, I think it was a couple earlier in uh, earlier in the year. I want to say it was around like the end of Q four uh, of last year. They uh, uh, had a partnership with Alameda, and Alameda actually acquired Ren. Uh, and to, to kind of like prolong the the funding for the the protocol. Uh, and of course with Alameda uh, filing for chapter 11 bankruptcy that kind of all uh, fell to the wayside and now Ren, the REN protocol and the REN team kind of found themselves like being unable to continue the building of this. Uh, and so I think their, their game plan really was to close up shop on REN 1.0, focus on REN 2.0. Uh, and then of course the issue that arises is there's no like they said they came out and said, you know, we can't guarantee compatibility between Ren 1.0 and Ren 2.0. So of course, like 1.0 assets wouldn't be able to be transferred over to 2.0. Uh, basically, putting this like pressure on anybody holding, you know, Ren BTC, which is their largest holding, uh, or any other other wrapped assets. Uh, and it's really just like it's been a constant theme throughout the entire year uh, that wrapped assets are not real assets. You know, this first really got shoved into the mainstream. Uh, when we saw the wormhole hack, when it was like millions and millions of dollars of wrapped ETH on Solana, it uh, became like worthless. And of course, Jump plugged that hole. And it's like, we always just like need someone to keep plugging these wrapped asset holes, uh, which is ironic that, we're, you know, this episode is gonna be a, an interview with ThorChain, which is essentially a, a bridge that gets like, only deals in native assets, doesn't wrap assets. Uh, if you swap a Bitcoin for ETH, then, you know, you give native Bitcoin, you receive native ETH, and the, the assets stay on both of their respective chains. Uh, and it really just highlights like that's just clearly a better way uh, to be pushing towards. And it just has a different security model that it would need to kind of facilitate these things. But, you know, wrapped assets just really those kind of need to die in, in, in this bull run and bear market. So I
3: think another issue that arises from this, and this is more applying to crypto as a whole, is if if you're someone who just like saw, ran Bitcoin and like maybe this was a year ago and you're like nice that's bitcoin on ethereum i can get yield on that and they like so you buy around bitcoin maybe you're um you're LPing on curve or something what if you're just like not around your computer this month like what if you like took a little sabbatical you're off in like the himalayas or something like crypto as an asset class there are like so many things that you really can't set and forget like Someone who doesn't know, who doesn't follow them on Twitter is not going to see that, you know, all this Bitcoin is just about to disappear. And uh, I think it raises like a broader, a broader topic for the entire ecosystem. Still needs to be solved.
1: Yeah. Strong agree with you there. It's like, you know, uh, like going into this bull run with all the mania around it, all my friends like, what do I buy? What do I buy? And, you know, I try to like give my best suggestions at the time that's never happening again. My answer is officially nothing. Stay away from it. If you don't pay attention to it every day, it's not worth your time. Like, to your point, Spencer, you can't set it and forget it. And like, that's such a the mentality with like investing in stocks and equities is like, you know, buy an ETF, worry about it when you're getting ready to retire and like just for like, yeah, essentially forget you own it. Um, And to your point, that just that just can't be done here. Uh, Yeah, it really changes my perspective on how I answer that question.
2: Yeah. And with all the bridge hacks we saw over 2022, and then you can 10X that number, which is probably like 2 billion, and you still don't even get to the number of centralized custodians. So you either have this, you know, fluid situation you got to constantly pay attention to, or you have a centralized entity like custodying it for you, which we see also doesn't work. So yeah, stay clear of wrapped assets would be my best advice. But Pibbles, I know you got a cool throne for the week. You wanna, you wanna toss it over to you for that?
3: Yeah. So we're looking at BitDAO. They put up a governance proposal yesterday, and they want to start buying two million dollars worth of Bit token for fifty days, starting on January first. So this adds up to be like a hundred million dollars of a buyback, and I think they have like a three hundred mil circulating supply. Um, so I think it's gonna be really interesting to see if this does anything for the price of the bit token and i also just think it'll be a nice experiment and seeing how buybacks work because they don't always lead to sustainable price action it is also just an ultimate cool throne because BitDAO sitting there with 1.7 billion dollars in their treasury and they're like we'll just buy our token back it's fine
1: What is, uh, that $1.7 billion held in? Is it mostly like other tokens like USDC or ETH?
3: It's a good question. Let's see if I can find
2: it. I actually just wrote a report on this. So I know it off the top of my head, it's like 425 million of stables and 350 million of ETH and then the rest is BIT. So they diversified really well, but all of that came from Bybit, which is, I believe a Singaporean based exchange. Um, And they were redirecting two and a half bips of all futures volume over to their treasury paid out in ETH and USDC and USDT. Uh, So yeah, I mean, they are the only DAO who has that big of a revenue stream, but then those were redirected to bit burns. So it's kind of a fluid situation and what Pibbles brought up is kind of the next iteration of the buyback program. So I agree. I think it's an interesting one to pay attention to, especially with their modular L2 launching on testnet in Q1 of next year. So I could for sure see something, you know, positive going for the bit token price. But at the same time, I'm a little bit wary of centralized exchanges doing weird things with tokens that they're closely affiliated with for pretty obvious reasons. So it's also one I really don't want to touch, but one I'm watching out for. So they're buying bit back,
1: they're burning bit, they're generating income from an exchange. They got seven hundred million in non- native token holdings I mean that's kind of juicy
4: it's pretty funny to see um sort of opposites within d5 protocols so you have bit that's just buying a hundred million dollars of the token and then on the other end you have sushi that's just absolutely strapped for cash like just cut half of their developer costs and are redirecting all of the revenue back to the treasury it's just yeah completely opposite situations uh, which is interesting to see and yeah such a bad bear market
2: Yeah, there's irony in that too, because Bit launched and tried to do a treasury swap with Sushi and the tokens are still sitting there in that contract. Like It's like they never even really claimed them and I couldn't find any traces of Sushi or Sushi in the BitDAO treasury wallet. So I don't even know what happened with that, but it's funny that we're seeing these problems with Sushi swap and BitDAO sitting over here like, let's buy back a hundred million dollars worth of our token on secondary. Dan, do you have a uh, cool throne for us for the week? Yeah, I got the the Trump
1: NFT dumpers. Uh, they got a nice little run up there. I think they're a hundred dollar starting price. So call point one ETH uh, ran up just shy of one ETH, so almost pulled a ten x on it. Uh, last I checked, it was around the point five five uh, range. So it had a nice little pullback, but still up. You know, five x from mint price, uh, and it's pretty funny. The Blockworks research put out a thread on this. Uh, I think Sam, you were the one who authored this one, and it kind of. Uh, Just highlighted what all went down with the NFT. And, like, you know, Trump's like a 78 year old dude. He doesn't, he probably had very little to actually do with this launch, but it's pretty funny to just kind of see. You know, it was a pretty poorly executed NFT launch. Um, You know, they used stock images that are like one for one rips from like Walmart and Amazon uh, websites and it's, it's just pretty funny to see like the, the poor execution, uh, and even some like, you know, insider flows happening. There was, I think it was, they minted like a hundred or was it a thousand, um, of their own minute NFTs back to the, the creator wallet. Uh, so, you know, maybe trying to profit off their own, uh, off their own, uh, mint, but you know, it is pretty interesting just kind of see how this all plays out. And like when celebrities get NFTs tied to their name, uh, you know, the immediate reaction is like, Oh, like this celebrity did this in this case, Trump did this. And it's like, okay, yes, they, you know, signed off on it, but you know, Trump is not out here coding smart contracts. So it's just kind of funny to see some negative backlash get directed to the person, which is probably still rightful. Um, you know, like if a high profile celebrity is going to be doing things like this, they, they need to be doing their due diligence just like anybody else. Um, but yeah, this was the, the latest NFT pump. So if you if you were on the, uh, the selling side, congratulations.
4: I think it's a good sign when we're sort of at uh, peak boredom in the market that all of a sudden we have an NFT launch that people are excited about. Even though, like, I certainly wasn't expecting people to actually be buying this NFT, but the fact that we got you know a little bit of a pump um, and some excitement around it, yeah, it just makes me a lot more optimistic. And that really, like, in the next like three to six months, even if we get cyber's price action on bitcoin and eth that there very well could be a big game launch big nft launch that actually does generate excitement um even in the broader bear market so yeah it was just good to see something go off um when everything else is pretty pretty sideways or down
2: yeah sean agree there good sign and of course they launched that nft collection on polygon i'm pretty sure so yet another win for the polygon bd team getting trump on on that on that network so Never surprises me.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Long live Polygon BD. Um, and yeah, we can probably jump into uh, some of our, our Flipside Dash this week. And as always, you know, shout out to Flipside. They really do have the best on-chain data. Uh, and in a time where it's becoming increasingly more important, that data is free. It's super exciting to see them doing things like this. Like, I'm a huge fan of the data they're curating. They have like 17 chains now. Uh, and doing a really good job of curating data in the Cosmos ecosystem. So uh, speaking of which, you know, we got ThorChain uh, in the interview this week and they have ThorChain data. They do a great job of c- bringing in and curating that data. Their tables are are very up to date as well. So um, looking at some Ethereum data today, uh, if I share my screen here, you might notice this is not a dashboard and a little bit of a different looking UI. Uh, the flip side is kind of rolling out a, a beta uh, UI to kind of Give more of like a developer feel to um, their, their uh, web, web environment, coding environment. And a uh, huge fan of it so far. And they're, they're doing a good job like working out the kinks in real time. So if you are messing around in this, you know, you know, be aware it's a beta. I think they're trying to launch the, uh, the full product in the beginning of 23. Uh, so I'm just around the corner. But if you look here, we have a chart that is comparing the average volume share of Ethereum DEXs between Curve and Uniswap. Uh, apologies for the the colors here for the the listener or for the watchers rather rather than the listeners Um, but what we're looking at is just an average volume share and i smoothed it over a 30-day moving average just to uh, kind of remove some of that volatility in the data curve has of 10 to 25 percent mark volume share of the combined volume between the two DEXs Uh, and what you notice is you know it's been pretty consistent on the lower end of that scale Uh, and there's been a couple jumps and most recently uh, is this this latest move up towards 27% and you know this is kind of something the analyst team jokes about or discusses quite a bit is like okay Uniswap is by far the dominant dex it's been the it's been the ringleader for quite some time uh, will it continue that dominance going forward and you know as somebody who's like really interested in curve and what they're doing and kind of building out the design uh, the do- design space of a token uh, and using the, like, they have the best executed vote escrow model uh, without a doubt. You know, Convex sits on top of them and has a huge, plays a huge role in their ecosystem. And love or hate VE tokenomics, that's definitely a, so there's there's two strong camps there. Uh, Curve has successfully pulled it off to this point in time. And it's interesting to see that you know they're kind of starting to call away some of this market share. I'm curious if any of you guys have a have a take on, you know, will Uniswap remain the dominant dex or will will, will we see some some sort of like a transition uh, when we move forward into 2023 and beyond?
3: I think the answer is really whoever develops a centralized order book built on top of a dex, I think that's who wins the volume and I know Uniswap funded one team to do that with a grant so if they get that done then maybe they keep that dominance but if not i mean i'm gonna go where the incentives are and if i have no incentive to use uni or provide liquidity on uni then i'm not sticking around i mean i don't even use uniswap now directly i just use like a an aggregator so tomatoes tomatoes for me
1: i think that last point's a great point though right like whoever throws the best price is ultimately where uh, people will get routed to. And, you know, the classic argument is, yeah, but Uniswap has such a dominant brand name. Um, And yes, it does to to this generation of users. But when we onboard another million users, I don't I personally find it hard to believe that they're going to have that same feeling. And now that crypto has become a lot more usable, like DeFi today is much different than DeFi two years ago. Um, and while it's still like you know feels a little sketchy sending some transactions here or there, uh, it's come a long way in terms of UI UX. Uh, so you know I personally don't think that that brand value is gonna like you have to think about how you're gonna capture the next wave of users because we're still at such a fraction. You know, there's like what maybe on the order of like 10 million people that are actually using DeFi today?
2: Yeah, I guess the one thing that would make me think maybe they can keep the ball rolling is obviously their lead that they have right now, but then the fee switch discussion, if that does go back to, you know, token stakers or whatever model they implement to, to kind of redistribute that revenue back to token holders. Um, I can just see like whales accumulating uni, being active in governance and then placing all their trades there because they'd be making a percentage of what they're paying back through whatever revenue generation model it is. Um, so that's the one bull case I see, but but I agree. I mean, there's better options out there. Why not use an aggregator
4: at the end of the day? I personally think uh, the the one that wins is who best navigates the role up centric future of ETH. And like uh, Pibbles said, I think it's gonna look more like a central limit order book than like an AMM. And so, yeah, I think there's a, a lot more time to go. I definitely don't think um, even with Uniswap's market share now that it's game over, um, but yeah, that's that's how I'm thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I think the one of the bigger turning points could be like Uniswap. has really missed the boat on um, the transact transaction volume for liquid staking derivatives. Right, so staked ETH is by far the most dominant liquid staking derivative, and all of it, that finds all of its liquidity uh, on Curve instead of Uniswap. And so, you know, I think. You know, I think maybe I don't want to speak for anyone, but I think we're all kind of in agreement, in agreement that liquid staking protocols are going to be a massive industry going forward. Um, and the UI and UX of using LSDs is just such a such an advantage, um, and relative to having like you know having to run your own validator or anything like that. So I, I will. I think that's kind of going to be the, the bull case for other other dexes instead of Uniswap. Is you know that's where a lot of those other dexes are where this transaction volume is occurring for these staking derivatives. Um, And as that sector continues to grow, so will those transaction volumes and ultimately so will the fees paid on those transaction volumes and so will the protocol revenue of other DEXs uh, relative to Uniswap. So that's kind of my bull case for other other DEXs. You know, I want to give another shout out to FlipSide for really having the best data and making this type of analysis possible. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes if you're somebody who likes to, uh, you know, kind of analyze blockchain data and has some SQL skills. Then then, uh, yeah, there's we got a little challenge for you to uh, go through a bounty and you can earn some free USDC for doing so.
2: Yeah, I'd like to take a second too to just thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're providing all the 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 analytics tools that our industry really needs in order to help legitimize our industry and provide the tools for professional investors to to get active in the space. They also um, offer some great research in the space, which is available for free on their website. So I'd highly recommend checking that out if you want to learn more. And uh, they also have some great courses on all things crypto, very niche topics. If you want to get really into the weeds, I highly recommend checking out Chainalysis uh, for that. Um, kind of coursework that can help further your knowledge on the industry. We'll leave all that stuff in the show notes, so be sure to check them out.
1: Sweet. Well, without further ado, uh, let's get straight into the interview with Chad Bearford from ThorChain.
2: All right, everybody. We're here with Chad Bearford, lead developer of the ThorChain community. Thanks for coming on, Chad. Thanks for yeah. having me. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll just get right into it. Um, I think it'd be really helpful if you could kind of explain to the listener how Thorchain differs from other bridge designs and kind of like the differences between the different design trade-offs. Yeah.
0: I mean, for one, I don't really consider Thorchain to be a bridge. Uh, I guess some might see it that way. And that's a reasonable position to take, I suppose. But uh, when I think about bridges, I think about um, services that will wrap an asset and then move the asset to another chain, like WBDC would be a wrapped asset. That's a bridge. You're creating taking layer-one asset like Bitcoin, and then you're moving it to Ethereum, and then like it's sent around Ethereum's world doing whatever it does. In ThorChain's case, it doesn't really do wrapped assets or anything like this. It just transfers value rather than assets. And so you're basically selling your Bitcoin and you're buying Ethereum, right? So that's why I don't consider it to be like a bridge because like a centralized exchange does this all the time. I don't think anybody would consider Binance to be a bridge. Although I guess you could make the argument, but nobody thinks of it that way. So like really more so, store chain is more of a, a, a centralized exchange that's decentralized rather than being a bridge just trying to uh, gap two chains with creating a wrapped Bitcoin and some other, you know, chain.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess you're um, kind of like the decentralized alternative to a centralized exchange. And that kind of begs the question of, you know, with all the drama we've seen with FTX, with BlockFi and different earned products, I know you guys just launched Savers Vaults. Um, yep. Could you kind of shed some light on what you think about the FTX situation and how it's potentially benefited ThorChain and how it will over the long term?
0: Um, well, it, it, it saddens me in some sense that it benefits ThorChain. I mean, I don't want to see people lose their money just so it, it makes it more obvious and clear why something like ThorChain is valuable. Like, I'd prefer people don't lose $10 billion of their money. Like, that's obviously awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, the, the problem with, with the CeFi or such like exchanges in general is that you always are exposed to the human risk, right? And humans are, you know, they're irrational, they're corrupt, they're incompetent, they're, and you never remove that, never. It doesn't matter what you do, how many regulations you throw into the mix, there's always the human risk, right? Uh, People just doing terrible shit. Um, And an FTF is just the latest, like, you know, proof of that in in a very large and large scale way, like it's, Shown in a way that was just like gargantuanly huge of how awful people can be and just burn other people's money to the ground. It's just terrible. But uh, on the upside, like I think one of the things that ThorChain is doing as a project is that a lot of the services that we would see CFI own, right? Like interest, in, interest on your Bitcoin or Bitcoin loans or cross-chain swaps. A lot of these services were like the only place you could get them was through CentLess. Uh, services. And ThorChain is a very unique uh, protocol. It's the only one trying to, trying to actually like compete against uh, centralized exchanges in a, in, a, in a meaningful way and centralized institutions like BlockFi and, and, you know, and these kind of services as well. And so like we are as a project, as, as a community, we're, we're building new DeFi protocols that have never existed before ever in the space that actually not only Competes against CFI in significant ways, but it can do it faster, cheaper, and more effectively with full transparency. L, by the way, and no borders as well. We don't really care to, if you're an American citizen or not, right? So, like, that's structurally what we're doing as as a as a, as a community. And uh, and I wish more people were were kind of fighting this battle with us. But I understand why it's a very difficult and ambitious
2: goal. So it's not easy, it's
0: not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. But it is something that needs to be needs to be done.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you see like centralized exchanges adding support for various assets like relatively quickly. Um, Is there any challenges, you know, that arise trying to do this in a decentralized manner versus trying to do it like as a centralized entity?
0: Uh, I think we're actually um, much more effective in that way than than C5 ever could be because Thorchain has this this concept called what we call DEX aggregation, right? And it's this really fascinating notion that that multiple DEXs of multiple ecosystems can use thorchain as a corridor to connect to each other. And so every dex has access to the assets and the liquidity of every other dex in like the in the crypto space itself. And so like the idea that you can go to any dex and get access to bitcoin, get access to ethereum, get access to some long tail assets on avax or or cosmos or whatever, like, you know, cardano theoretically, like anything, right? And that doesn't need to be uh be adopted by Thorchain directly. It just becomes a corridor to get from point A to point B, and so like when you get to this place where every dex has access to all assets across all chains, well then how does CFI compete with that? How is CFI going to like launch all these individual tokens, which is very expensive for them to do, right? That takes a lot of money, takes a lot of time, a lot of vetting. Uh, it's I mean talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost per token. That, that a CFI has to spend to do that. And in our case, people can just create the pool on Uniswap, for example, and then all of a sudden you've accessed from that token to every other token in the space. <laughs> like that's incredible. Like that, 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 that's a game changing concept that like we are actually heading to and, and ThorChain's literally plowing that way.
1: Yeah, and it, it's pretty, pretty impossible not to be excited about you know the the, the prospect of having a true centralized exchange like experience, but decentralized Um, and so that kind of like begs the question of like all right well if you're going to do this there has to be sound like economic and uh, security guarantees within the protocol so I want to kind of dive in on that side Um, and you guys kind of have like a a pretty novel proof of bond consensus mechanism so I'd love to get a little bit on that uh, and kind of touch on you know what the nodes are doing securing the vaults you know and and just for the listener like uh, you know the Uh, The way that Thorchain operates is it allows cross-chain swaps where the the node operators kind of like control these vaults, which are really just wallets on on the various chains. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about how that actually uh, gets secured.
0: Yeah. So like, um, so Thorchain has its own token called RUNE. And it actually uh, is one of the best cases of why you actually need a, a separate token, like a new token, right? So... In order to ensure economic security and that all the non-Rune or the non-native assets that the Thorchain are secure, people need to put up a bond of this Rune token. And that Rune token needs the ability to go to zero. Like, actually, if the event were to occur where all the assets were stolen, all the Bitcoin, the Ethereum, the Doge, the Litecoin, like all the AVAX, whatever was stolen, then that point, the Rune token would go to zero, which is actually a really important component to, for economic security because it will always cost a lot more money to buy the room than to just burn it to zero and then acquire, you know, far less quantity of bitcoin and ethereum and doge and whatever tokens are on the network, right? And so like uh, this is the only project that I'm aware of that actually has economic security of of external assets, right? Uh, every Everybody else in the space just basically with, like shrugs their shoulders and like, oh, yeah, like the value of the pools can be far greater than the value of the bond. In which case, if somebody just bought enough bond and then got a majority of the nodes and then stole all the Bitcoin, all the like whatever the assets were, were going to be that are far more valuable than the, the money they spent to get to that to that had that bond. It's just like, well, you've literally created an economic incentive to attack your network that there's nothing you can do about it. That's not a good idea. Like, we just recently saw with FTX, according, like, they took out like a $1.5 billion like, loan to attack Terra, accordingly. That, that's This is the rumor people are putting around. But like, like there are people with big wallets, with massive whales who have the time and the energy and the effort and the will to, to do something if it's highly profitable for them. And so that's, this is why economic security is so important. Like, we can't just assume there's nobody rich who doesn't want to make more money. <laughs> that's, that's not a that's not a bet that I would personally want to take, you know? And so we need economic security to say like, oh, if you're super mega rich, you can go ahead and, and spend $100 million to buy $50 million of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and various assets. Then that makes you the worst trader in the world and you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's how, it, like it just, just go buy $100 million with the Bitcoin, Ethereum. You don't need to spend all the money, time, and effort to like, and the months that it would take to attack ThorChain to walk away with far less money, <laughs> that would be wildly silly and wildly dumb. <laughs> so it's really kind of important that ThorChain has its own unique asset to ensure that people always lose the more value than they ever gain.
1: And so I guess the, the, counter, the common counter argument there is, okay, well, what if I shorted it on the other side and like tried to make the profit uh, on that point? A fair
0: question. So, we actually literally talk about this in the economic white paper, which you can read. We published that two years ago or three years ago, whatever the hell it was. So, uh, as long as ThorChain is the primary market for the Rune token, this becomes completely impractical, right? If you get to a situation where most of the Rune trading is on, you know, Coinbase or, some, or something like this, then you can run into that potential problem, right? Where somebody can short the token and then collapse the, the network and then make, make a profit. But if, if, if the tail is basically wagging the dog, I said so the dog wagging the tail. Like that's when you can get into that problem. But because there's so much incentive for incentive for people to trade on Thorchain to provide rune into this network as a bond or as an LP or whatever, uh, there's not much drive to put it on other exchanges. You know, it, all the all the incentive, all the, the the demand centers are right on Thorchain itself.
1: Right, right, and so. Talking a little more on the bond side of things, right? So if I'm a validator, I have to post a bond uh, and then be, have a post a bond to a significant enough size that I'm then churned into the network. And is that mm-hmm. churn process exactly why it would take uh, a longer time to even generate the, the attack against the network?
0: Yeah, because so the, so the network does what we call a churn every like three or four-ish days, right? I, and what that means is it, it's kicking out a bunch of nodes, usually it's because of they've been in uh, you know churned in for a long period of time or they have a lot of slash points that they weren't operating their node very well or very efficiently. Uh, maybe they didn't upgrade their version to the latest version. I mean, there's, a, there's a handful of things that could kind of trigger somebody to be kicked out. But usually at minimum, there's like, typically there's like three that get churned at any given time, or maybe even five, depending on scenarios. And then new ones get churned in based upon their bond size, how larger bonds get chosen first over smaller bonds in a sense. And so if you wanted to take, like, there's about, uh, I think there's like 86 or 88 n- nodes in the network today or something like this. And so if you wanted to get two-thirds majority of that, you have to like get your nodes to churn in and then they're eventually going to get churned right back out again. So they have to get them churned back in again. it's It would be a difficult process and a very expensive process because he, not only would you have to get so many nodes churned in, but your nodes would have to be far higher bonded than everybody else's nodes in the, in the network, which would just create uh, an economic, you know, uh, uh, uh hurdle that would be, you know, expensive to get past.
1: Right, exactly. And then I guess even, you know, on, on the other side of things, like if you were to try to make the short on the other side, it, it, it wouldn't be necessarily feasible because you'd have to short, you have to borrow a token in order to short short it, right? And so if the economic incentive is to have all this net, uh, rune in the network, uh, then there isn't even enough rune outside of the network to, to execute that trade. Um, and I'm curious, so like, you know, ThorChain's a Cosmos chain that currently is not IBC enabled. Um, does that play into any of the incentive is like not wanting to bring that rune uh, outside of the network? Yeah, I mean, there's
0: a lot of been a lot of conversations about the value or 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 risks that are involved with integrating with IBC. Um, but that that is theoretically one of them. Being able to to, to beam your rune to another uh, chain, which could be shorted there, is a I guess a potential risk. I don't want to consider it to be a huge risk. I still don't think there would be enough rune on that other. Cosmos chain to actually create like a significant problem to be honest with you. Um, but I think IBC is, um, as a project we needed to do cross-chain bridging, which is basically what IBC does like in, in some sense, but we had a very different spec, a requirement list than what IBC was trying to accomplish. We wanted to be chain agnostic. We wanted to operate, not just within the Cosmos realm of things, we wanted to be able to to, to connect with basically any chain in the world. Right with very little requirements to, to be being placed on those chains to be able to interact with them, and so like we wanted to support Bitcoin, we wanted to support Ethereum, want to support you know you know uh, I don't know AVAX and and maybe Solana and like other things because we want something much more powerful and flexible than what IBC is really capable of doing.
1: Right, right. That makes sense. And then, you know, recently on Twitter over the past day or two, uh, there's been some Anatoly, uh, the the founder of Solana, has kind of been making this argument against the security of uh, ThorChain. And actually, you know, he is open that it's not against the economic model. It's more on like the technology side of things. And I'd yeah. love for you to kind of like explain that uh, argument a little bit, because to be honest, it's like very much in in developer speak and, and I'd <laughs> love for you to distill like, that down just a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Anatoly is, is, is an interesting dude and I certainly have a lot of respect for what he's trying to do. So I, I'm not trying to throw any shade to Anatoly or, or at Solana or any of these things. Uh, but what he's really talking about is, is, is something called RCE, which is like remote code execution. So that's just like the, a fancy way of saying uh, some malicious hacker, you know, breaks into, you know, a validator's node and has then gains root access to it, like owns that that server or whatever. That That's like hypothetically what he's talking about. And to be fair, he's absolutely right. Like if a, va- a vast majority of two thirds majority of the validators of ThorChain's validator set were broken into, right? Some hacker got in through some, you know, exploit or some zero-day thing, blah, 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 whatever it might be, and then own that node, then that person would have the ability to just to steal the Bitcoin and steal all the Ethereum and steal those assets. But that's true with like every computer system on the fucking planet as well. <laughs> like every single one of them. It's like, hey, if I break into all the computers and, and then I own it. And I'm like, well, yeah, that if I break into somebody's house, then I own it too. Like in a sense, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I get what you're saying and you're right. But like, I can break into two-thirds majority. Not that I actually could or would, but like I can break into two-thirds majority of Solana's nodes and then own it or Osmosis or Bitcoin or like enter any like FBI's databases. Like literally like everything in the world works this way of like, hey, if you break into it, then you own it. It's like, well, yeah, that's literally how everything works. So it's not really like, to me, it's not really specific about ThorChain's design or implementation. It's just like a, a general thing about computers are not secure if you break into them, and I'm just like, I, I yeah, I, that's true. I don't I, I don't have anything to say I don't have anything to say about that. It's just the reality of how computers work. Okay, thumbs up.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess like the 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 one thing to me is like okay, so let's say I took all two thirds of Solana nodes controlled the network. Uh, you know, you still can't sign transactions that move funds out of users' wallets. And like the one Kavit with uh, ThorChain is they are securing these vaults that sit on the other networks that I guess theoretically could be drained if you did control the validators. But at that point, in my mind, it's like, okay, well, well, broken is broken.
0: Well, you don't – if you own two-thirds majority of the validator set, you don't need signatures to move funds because you own the network. You can just literally just push an update that, drain, that moves – Funds from your wallet to my wallet. I don't. You know. I don't require a signature from you to, to be able to move those funds. I can still move those funds, right? And then on the Bitcoin case, where we're, because we have external assets that are not controlled by Thor, not like signed by Thorchain itself, like it's signed by on the Bitcoin blockchain, you need to develop an actual signature to move those things. And if you have two thirds majority of the network, you can ge- generate that signature and move those funds. There really isn't much of a difference uh, between Thorchain and Solana in the sense like. If you get two thirds majority of the nodes on either case, you can move any funds you want to any location without, without any problems. The difference is, though, to be fair, to be objective and to be fair is that because ThorChain has uh, like, f- I think four or five uh, Asgard vaults, at, at like diff- four or five different special signature vaults, you'd only actually require it to break into, I think 14 nodes that run the same uh, Asgard vault to steal those particular funds. So you wouldn't necessarily need a two-thirds majority to be able to steal funds. You would need to get through 14 nodes, which is different than Solana's case. But again, Solana doesn't do what we do. They don't have the same like requirements. They don't have the same challenges that we have. And so we have a different set of things that we have to worry about. So you can still move funds around even if you get two-thirds majority. They don't require signatures. His argument that like, oh, full nodes won't believe it. I'm like, well, f- full nodes don't matter. They're just like read replicas of all the data. Like they don't really matter. The state is made, made by the validator set. Like that's the only thing that really actually matters. If I want to move like soul tokens from one wallet to another and I have two-thirds majority, I can just, I can just do that. Without really needing a signature.
1: Right. This is probably a, a good segue actually into one of my next questions, which is okay, so ThorChain supports a wide variety of assets today. You know, we have Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, and down the chain recently adding uh, the Atom token to br- kind of like really break into that Cosmos side of things. Um, And I'm just so like, can you just walk us through like, okay, what's the process of adding a new chain? Like what needs to be done Uh, and what are some limitations to some chains? And and this is a good segue because right, Solana is like one that maybe the the barrier entry to get uh, Solana into the ecosystem is a little bit too high.
0: Yeah. So uh, there's a a handful of things and there's docs. I think it's like dev.thorchain.com or .org or something like this um, where we document this process. But the first thing you gotta do is you gotta create what's called a chain client, which is the thing that basically observes transactions and signs transactions on that new chain. Let's we'll just call it Solana for this purpose, right? Then we have to create like smoke tests, which is basically a way of like making sure that all the code works and everything can spin up and work and swap and, and add liquidity, the trial liquidity, all the basics, right? All, all that kind of works. And then the next part is uh, adding to the what's called XChainJS, which is a JavaScript library that just makes it really easy for web UIs just to like add Solana like overnight without needing to, you know, rebuild the code over and over and over again. Uh, and then the fourth part is just like marketing process, like getting the Thorchain community and getting the Solana community to come together and 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 uh, inform each other of each other's uh, projects and the, the, what the value proposition is, blah blah, blah all these kind of things, so that we launch. Solana with like liquidity, with people actually providing liquidity to the network, which would be obviously very positive. Um, in terms of requirements, though, like um, technical requirements, it's very very minimal. Um, the only one that, sh- that you, uh, the only one I can think of is like, um, off the top of my head, is like, can we generate private keys at random? Can I just generate my own wallet whenever I want to? Like, that's a requirement. Like, every blockchain supports that. For example, uh, we ran into some problems with like we we're looking into doing like the Secret Network on the Cosmos chain, um, but they have like specific hardware requirements. They, have, they, they require XGX like chipsets to to function. Uh, and so we uh, that creates too much of a technical barrier for our validators to be able to run a full node of, of the secret network, unfortunately. Uh, Solana is a problem because as you were saying, it's very expensive. It's like probably like two or $3,000 on Amazon to run a Solana node. And that really cuts into the the revenue that the validators are earning. Like they have to, they have operational costs, and the more nodes, the more chains we add, the more operational costs that they have to endure. And then we have to make sure that the profit, the yield that they generate, is you know a good margin higher than the cost the cost to operate it, right? And so, so that's the challenge with Solana is because they're so expensive. It's like, well, is the network going to generate enough revenue from Solana to warrant the High cost that it would cost the validators to actually run a, run the node. Is enough swaps going to happen? Is enough liquidity going to happen? Is there going to be enough? Is Anatoly going to be like you know tweeting about it and, and telling people they should provide liquidity into Thorchain or not? Like that actually becomes a you know one of the the, uh, the things to to consider. But in the end, like it's the network itself. It's the validators themselves that that dictate whether or not we add new chains or don't add new chains. It's up to them. They make the choices, not me, not anybody else. So it's, it's only the community that can make the final determination of whether or not we add Solana or not.
1: Has there been any signaling done towards kind of like which assets are next and super curious about if ETH L2s uh, are kind of on that list? Uh,
0: Yes. I think the, probably the most likely chain to get added next would be play Binance Smart Chain. It's just like, obviously this mega huge uh, economic powerhouse and, and hopefully there's some good like value there, good like uh, capital um, value there. Um, L2s are totally possible, right? Um, both on the light, like light network is possible, um, you know, polygon is possible, like all these things. Like technically it's kind of comical to think about it, but like technically validators could use an, like a Google spreadsheet as a data source if they really, really want it. Mean, you know, you wouldn't do that because it would be insecure, blah, 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 all these things, but like, it can literally connect to anything right? It doesn't have to be even a blockchain, technically speaking. Uh, but yeah, they can do L2s. That's something that people have talked about in the past, and there's definitely some interest in there. And it's a hotly debated topic of what is the next chain? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, you know, who knows? And so my, my, my thinking is that Binance Smart Chain will probably be the next one. And I'm hoping that Monero will be the next one after that, because Monero would, would be huge for the industry. To be able to get in and out of Monero in a centralized way without being KYC is, to me, that's a game changer.
1: Do you believe that like adding some of these privacy chains increases the likelihood that it bring on like regulatory regulatory risks at all?
0: Uh, for sure it does. Uh, the act of adding Monero it wouldn't or Zcash. It's not so much the act of adding it; it's more of the use of it. So, like if if North Korea started to push through six billion dollars through Thorchain siphoning things through Monero, then I think that would that would tr- trigger you know uh, government to get more involved in that sense. But at the same time like I, I don't really try to think too much about what you know the meat space is going to be doing and how X person or Y government would like it or wouldn't like it. It's more about what is right for humanity. Right. Like what is what is like down to the core beliefs as as, as as our industry is about having, you know, self-sovereignty and the freedom of decentralized frameworks and public good networks to achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve in your in your life financially or 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 whatever. Um, I don't want to. I, I think it's morally right to grant the freedom to be able to trade privacy assets if you want. I think that's just the we have the moral high ground there, and that the right to access to privacy exists prior to government, before the government even gets minted and even existed. The right to privacy already existed prior to them, and so they don't really have the right to remove my sense of privacy or anybody's sense of privacy in my in my view. So maybe that will happen, and maybe it won't. But if we're you know if we're decentralized enough, uh, it won't really matter so much.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with the ethos there. Um, and I'm curious, so if you were, let's say Monero has been on the chain and now all of a sudden, like it's becomes, for whatever reason, it's just imagine it becomes obvious that North Korea is doing exactly that. Um, do node operators have the ability to like uh, turn off the integration with Monero at that point?
0: Yeah, uh, node operators have the ability to, to enable or disable what the hell they want. Um We've only disabled one chain so far, and that was Terra for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, we have the ability to do that, and and if the community really wanted to, they could even like blacklist specific addresses. I, I don't think we should do that personally, and I would advocate against it. But if somebody wanted to do that, there's nothing to stop them. If the if the community th- saw fit, right? So it's up to the community. The, the community can literally do whatever the hell they want with this thing, you know, whether I I personally agree with it or not. So if they wanted to to to, to take off Monero or something then they could. But more than likely, like, to be honest with you, like the Monero pool probably would not be deep enough to warrant $6 billion trade of North Korean funneling of money. Most likely. Uh, But maybe I'm wrong about that.
1: If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research. And Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency
2: and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best in class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out and we'll link to them in the show notes. On the same topic as liquidity, like it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I could easily be wrong here, but the security of the network kind of increases alongside TVL. Um, does that? Do I kind of have that right? Um,
0: It can. So if, if the dollar price of Rune, if the price of Rune goes up, then that would actually trigger both the, the security and the and the TVL to increase, right? Uh, if the TVL is just increasing on its own, it probably would not cause, well, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. So there's no direct cause of security to increase, but there's an indirect cause of, hey, people are LP more, creating more buy pressure in the rune asset, which causes the rune value to go up, which causes security to go up. And at the same time as more TVL is added uh, and, the, and you know, a greater percentage of the value is being added to the TVL side, the incentive pendulum kicks in, which kind of swings some of the yield away from the LPs and towards the nodes. And as the the security increases, the pendulum swings towards the, you know, the, 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 uh, the TVL, the pools, right? And so there's a natural incentive that kind of, that pushes the yield towards the, the player that we want to become more active and away from the person we want to become less active, depending upon just the free market of that moment.
2: Okay, I see. So that was going to be my question. I was going to ask, how do you exactly incentivize liquidity? But it sounds like that's kind of exactly how you do it. So perfect.
0: Yeah, the, the pendulum does it. So if the pools were like hundred percent full, like they were equal size to the to the um, to the security, then the pools would earn zero percent APY. And the nodes would earn 100% of, of whatever the income was that the network is then generating. So that incentivizes node operators. to so like, oh, hey, I'm making massive in- like yield here. Like I'm getting all of the yield of the entire system to my wallet, whatever. Let's buy some more Rune and, and add more Rune into the, the bond side and get make, make more money. And meanwhile, the, the pool guys, the LPs are basically like, I'm earning 0% yield in this thing. I'm, you know, what am I doing here? And then I'm just gonna to start to leave. And then this that naturally creates that pendulum that pushes back towards uh, a two thirds, one third that we, we try to push for.
1: And the whole design behind that two thirds, one third, right, is is so that if I'm a validator, if I swear to like say, okay, you know, I control uh, some portion of these assets on these networks. Like if I was gonna steal these assets or act maliciously towards these assets, I would essentially be uh, risking $2 for every $1 I could steal, correct?
0: Uh, Yes, basically, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that kind of ties back to just to how, uh, you know, the whole network really is, like, this um, economic incentives-based system uh, with the goal of creating, like, a trustless model, right? To, to be able to just swap asset A into asset B uh, through the ThorChain network. Um right. And that kind of, like, you know, that gets me into, the, like, the, some of the more exciting recent developments, right? Like, so we just launched the... Uh, Thorchain savers vaults, um, you know, I've been watching the uh, synth utilization there like a hawk and it looks like uh, the Bitcoin one maxed out you know, in like less than a month, uh, well, it was yep. like maybe even like two weeks. Uh, so I'd love like to get a little weeks, background yeah. on, on what exactly <laughs> the savers vaults are, and kind of how they work.
0: Yeah, so when we launched the network, um, we launched with like just a, a regular AMM and, and was, we made some significant advancements. Like we don't have MEV attacks, for example, we use slip-based feed model, which is much more efficient and effective way to charge fees, for example. We had a lot of significant advancements in amms when we launched this thing. But the the problem we ran into, I think, as a, as a community is that if you think about like a Venn diagram, right? And there's like two circles and then like a little a sliver between the two of them. One of those circles is like people who want to earn rune on their rune. And another circle is people who want to earn Bitcoin on their Bitcoin. And there's some people that little sliver in the middle that want to earn both, right? And that's basically what a dual LP or is that little sliver in the middle, right? In a matter of speaking. And so we were talking to a bunch of like, you know, we were offering like Bitcoin yield, for example, and we were talking to a bunch of these Bitcoin whales who were like, hey, come, you know, provide your Bitcoin into, into the Bitcoin pool and earn yield. But then they'd, they'd say to us like, well, I don't want to sell half my Bitcoin into Rune and then take on that price exposure, the Rune asset. Like, I don't want to do that. I'm a Bitcoin person. I'm a Bitcoin, you know, maybe I'm a maxi or whatever it might be, right? And so we had a hard time like convincing those types of people to like provide liquidity liquidity to, to get our pools super deep. And so then we came up with this idea of like how to do single sided um, yield, like so that you provide Bitcoin, you get Bitcoin as your yield, and you're not price exposed to the rune asset at all. You're just price exposed to just Bitcoin. And we came up with this this design, the savers design, that we now you know launched a few, a few weeks ago. Uh, and so it's going to be our solution to this problem, like how do we scale the liquidity in the network by offering something that nobody else in DeFi spent land can offer, and only centralized services offer like BlockFi for example, but then again they don't offer it anymore either because they don't exist anymore. <laughs> they're sure. now they're now six feet under in a matter of speaking. So now like in a sense like the only place you can actually get Bitcoin yield in your Bitcoin is basically two places. One is mining Bitcoin in a sense and and the, and the other one is uh, uh here on Thorchain, right, where we offer like I think a five percent APY.
1: And so if we talk about where that revenue comes from right so you're essentially just a single-sided lp in this scenario right like you only have price exposure to one asset in the pool uh where does the revenue come from
0: well it comes from the pool itself right so like the pool is generating yield from swaps and trades It's also generating yield from uh just from block rewards just like bitcoin does uh and so all that's being put into the pools and that generates some point of yield and then you get some percentage of that yield depending upon how many savers you have in the network
1: the savers vaults are essentially built on top of a previous Thorchain uh, primitive called synthetic assets. Can you kind of dive into what a synth is and how it's always uh, secured to be or how it's always redeemable for one to one for the underlying asset and kind of like what that backing is?
0: Yeah. So what backs the, the collateral of a, synthetic, of a synthetic asset is uh, the pool itself. The Bitcoin pool backs the synthetic Bitcoin uh, assets. And so it's back half by Bitcoin and half by Rune. So it's led by the pool itself. And so whenever you're um, trading from synthetic Bitcoin to like layer one Bitcoin, you're basically uh, making a swap or a trade uh, to the layer one asset. And then you, you know, you leave with your layer one uh, Bitcoin, right? So um, the more synths that we have in the network, the the more of a percentage, the synths own of that pool in a sense. And as the synths, Grow in value because Bitcoin's price goes up by you know relative to the rune, it just kind of siphons some value from the LPs to to make to make sure we we've, we've got this like this value this purchasing power required for all the synths is like put aside and locked away for them to to prove that they that they have the the value they needed to support their synthetic assets.
1: Right, and so essentially, then like if I am uh, a vault saver. And I, let's, say I, let's say, let's keep using Bitcoin, for example. Like I'd say I have you know, one native Bitcoin and I wanna earn yield on this. Can you just walk me through the process of uh, both what I experience as a vault saver? So like the actual process of me uh, joining the vault and then what that looks like to me versus what that looks like to the protocol.
0: Yeah, so to you, it's like super clean, super simple. You, you, you can't get anything dumber than this. Um, you literally just send some Bitcoin to an address. That's like, that's, you just transfer Bitcoin. That's all you do. That's it, that, you're done. Nothing more. <laughs> and then when you want to take your Bitcoin out later, you just send some dust at the, at the, at the network saying, which basically the, the dust communicates like, I want to withdraw my Bitcoin and the network just sends you your Bitcoin. So for you, it's just like super clean, super simple. You can literally do this from any Bitcoin wallet in the world, doesn't matter. They all support it, right? From the network's perspective, it's doing something much more complicated and abstracting all that compl- complexity away for you. So it's receiving your Bitcoin, right? And then it's contributing that Bitcoin and its value into the pool, and then it's minting a synthetic Bitcoin, like a, a one synthetic Bitcoin for the for your for your trade here. There's a swap fee that's happening when you're when you're entering this position, so you do get charged some small fee for that. Uh, but you basically are taking your one Bitcoin, you put it in the network, and the network it, the Bitcoin gets added to the pool, and then it mints a synthetic Bitcoin, so it gives you the claim on that liquidity in the pool to be equal to one Bitcoin. So no matter what happens, the Bitcoin price. It has that claim that like one bitcoin worth of purchasing power, or just like one bitcoin is, is available to you, right? Um, and so while the network is is there and, and it's producing yield from the from the swaps and the block boards blah blah blah, all these things, the network will just mint new synthetic bitcoin into the savers vault, right? Which basically just reallocates value from the LPs to the savers. It's like basically like the LP is getting like all the yield. And then at the end of the block, the network just says, okay, you got, you know, hundred bucks, but 20 of that dollars should go to the, to the Bitcoin savers people. So we're, we're gonna mint basically $20 worth, which basically just transfers value from the LPs to the savers in the way of like an easy way of mathematically achieve, achieving that goal. And so while that's just generating all that revenue, you can sit there for as long as you want, or as much Bitcoin as you want, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right now, it's like five percent of PY. And then when you're ready, the reverse happens when you when you withdraw. You just send a Bitcoin, send some Bitcoin dust at the network saying, I did, this would just be a, a, making a request to with, withdraw all your Bitcoin." It takes whatever amount of Bitcoin that you put in plus whatever you generated that twenty dollars, we'll just say, or whatever it might be, and then makes a swap from synthetic Bitcoin back to Layer One Bitcoin, which there are swap fees that are uh, charged for that for that purpose. And then you receive your Bitcoin on the side. You do this whole thing from just a Bitcoin wallet. You never actually got a Thor wallet. You never really got Rune. Didn't need to touch it, hold it, whatever. All happens just from your just from signing uh, transactions on the Bitcoin network.
1: This is really exciting to me because uh, you know, like from the day first day I got into crypto, I was like, this stuff is so cool. Uh, but it, it's interesting to me because like I love. Just like the technical side of things, I love the economic side of things. But I'm like, for mass adoption to happen, we need to simplify the shit out of this. Yes, and that's exactly what Thorchain is doing. It's like obfuscating that insane, complicated process away by a, with literally just sending one transaction. And, and to me, that's what like really gets me excited about this.
4: Yeah,
0: that was one of our concerns about being being an LP and, a, and an AMM. It's like a complicated concept because you have to make multiple assets, and then you're price exposed to multiple assets, which means you have impermanent loss issues, which can make it really conflated or hard to understand. Like, are you up? Are you down? Like, how are you performing? And you're like, it's just a really difficult thing to understand. Uh, And so that's why we're kind of shifting in some sense. Like at least some of the devs are like, let's move away from the traditional LPs and and providing both sides and just move towards savers as the the avenue for most people to provide liquidity because it's so clean. There's no impermanent loss to worry about. It's just like, I put in Bitcoin and then tomorrow I have more Bitcoin and the next day I have more Bitcoin and the next day I have more Bitcoin. There's no fluctuating yield in the sense of like, oh, I, I'm up $10, I'm down $30, I'm up $30, I'm down $30. Like, it's just like, it only goes, literally only goes in one direction. You, you're just earning more yield every day and just goes in a single direction, which is just so uh, easy to understand and, and easy to follow, right? So I think that's where we're gonna, I think we're heading as a, as a community is that we're gonna moving away from LPs allowing what we call protocol-owned liquidity to kind of take on that role and then just allow everybody just to provide Bitcoin to the network and asset, whatever asset they want and just make the pool super deep.
2: Yeah, that actually leads me into a question I had. I know you guys had IL protection, like after like 100 days of providing liquidity. Is that still a thing? Is that something you think should stay a thing in the future? What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, so the, the idea of IL protection was just like... we. In the earliest days of Thorchain, we wanted to remove as many like arguments or reasons why you would want, not want to LP on the network, right? And impermanent losses is one of those like risks you take on as a as a dual sided LP in any AMM in the world, um, except for Curve because everything is the same price. Um, but um, so we added that to to, to incentivize, and then reality was as we did the math after looking at like I think six to twelve months of economic. Data from the network from, from 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 single chain chaos net was that like after 100 days people don't experience permanent loss it's like it's very a low risk right um, because they generate so many fees during those 100 days that whatever IL you're experiencing is n- is not going to be greater than than the actual fees that you generated the yield that you generated and so we added it in part because it's like not because it actually did anything it just gave people a sense of comfort but in reality it really doesn't actually really do all that much like it doesn't actually the network doesn't really require that much that much il protection to be honest with you right um i think in total it's paid maybe about like three million rune in total out of you know out of 10 billion dollars in transaction volume and 80 million rune in bond and i think like 30 or 40 million and, and like it's it's a very relatively small percentage uh, of that um so I think that there's now a debate to remove it, to remove ILP. The reason why that is, is because um, we didn't have a, a method for people to get a yield on Thorchain without being exposed to IL, but now we do with Savers, right? So if you're if you're risk adverse and you just want to get Bitcoin, your Bitcoin, you want to get like less yield but less risk, blah blah blah, then this is your this is your thing for you. Jump into Bitcoin Savers, right? But if you're if you are risk on and you want a higher risk but higher reward system, then being a dual sided LP is probably right for you, right? And so we don't need to to you know um, to come up with this crux to, to convince people to be an ILP to be a LP anymore because we have another option for them that is that works f- effectively pretty well, right? Uh, so I think the, I think my intention or my my interest or my my I, would, I advocate for is just to remove ILP with grandfathering in people who are already LPs before like they they've already got the LP ILP like we've already guaranteed their ILP we don't want to strip something away from somebody who has already given it so grandfather in everybody who is like already an LP and then new LPs into the future would would not have access to that ILP
1: right and then, and that kind of is a good segue into, into the next point here so you know, you talk about how there's essentially now two LPs within a pool, right? The, the traditional two-sided double-sided LPs, as well as the savers who just have that single-sided exposure. Um, and that kind of changes the risk profile of the, the, the presence of synths or the presence of, uh, savers as well, right? Changes mm-hmm. the risk profile, uh, of those double-sided LPs. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how exactly that changes, uh, and sort of how synth caps play into this?
0: Yeah. So think about this way. Like, um, the network has, um, let's see how I put this um, in a simple way. As an LP, you are based in some sense, backing the value of the synths, right? Like the, as, a synth for, as a synth receiver, as somebody who has a synth, you provided one Bitcoin and the network gave you one synthetic Bitcoin, minus swap fees, right? And if the Bitcoin price moves relative to Runa in one direction or the other that is either giving value to LPs or taking away value from LPs. So if Bitcoin is outperforming Rune, then we need to take value from LPs to, to ensure that the synth holders are, are whole and that we maintain the value of their synthetic asset. If Rune outperforms Bitcoin, then we basically take value from the synth people and we give it to the LPs, right? And so in a sense, like you can look at it as a dual side LP, is like again a slightly leveraged rune position, right? In some sense, like you're getting you're getting either more yield or less yield depending upon rune's performance, right? And how much th- how much leverage there is is relative to the synth utilization of that pool. So if synths are like one percent, there's like basically almost no leverage. It's basically the same thing as if there was zero, right? It's because it's so close to each other. If there was 90% cents and 10% LPs, well, then it's like highly leveraged, right? I don't know the exact, what X leverage it would be, but like you'd be, if 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 rune's price performs well relative to asset, you would gain a lot of money really fast. And of course, in the reverse direction, you would lose a lot of money really, really fast. And so if you're taking on like a leveraged position with the rune asset versus the, the, the other asset, and the more cents there are, the more risk there is for LPs in a sense, the more leverage there is for the LPs, I should say.
1: So taking on the skeptic's view here, Rune itself isn't an, isn't an, uh, you know it's an it's an altcoin that uh, tends to move about two x the the. Uh, change in bitcoin in a given day right so if bitcoin moves five percent you know ruins probably seven to ten percent up and the vice versa is true as well right if if Bitcoin's yep. down Rune's down more um so taking on a leverage bet in in on an altcoin such as Rune, right? Like that would make some people nervous. And mm-hmm. um, like, cause the immediate thought is, okay what's worst case scenario is like, let's say, you know whatever, for whatever reason, Rune crashes 75% over the course of a week. Uh, how would that affect the the pools and, and the LPs within that pool? Yeah,
0: if that were to happen hypothetically the LPs would be, would have more loss in, in their position, right? Some of their, some of their principle might've been eaten up in some sense. Uh, but not realized. It's not realized until people actually leave, right? Since either leave or you leave yourself. So it's like it's an unrealized loss or unrealized income, depending on which direction we're going. I think like one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by is um, is that we just kind of like allow dual sided pieces to become as risky as they want, right? To to like some high utilization, and then allow the POL to be to be the the LP of last resort. And so, like, maybe in the, into the future, it's like, it's not even, there's not, there's not even really any dual-size LPs anymore, except for people who are like really bullish rune and they want to this huge, like, use leverage position or whatever. And it's just like the well and savers. And that's, that, that's all there is. And if, that, if that's what it is, then it's like a super clean, simple thing. Like, it's, there's not a bunch of different products that people have to worry about. It's just like, you just get in with savers and you get your income and then you walk away. And then everything else is just like abstracted away by the, the protocol itself because the protocol can be bullish RUNE. Like it, that. obviously the network itself is very bullish, its own asset for obvious reasons. And it has a very long t- time view to look at. Like it doesn't really care about, you know, bull markets and bear markets. It's looking on like multi-year, multi-decade perspective, Like right? It's got a much longer range viewpoint than your average retail investor. So it has no problem taking on, you know, bull markets and bear markets because the network feels over the long-term, RUNE will, you know, outperform you know, Bitcoin just over the like at any given time over the long term of the network of the of a decade, for example.
1: So the synth caps today are 30% of the asset depth in the pool, right? So if there's a 100 Bitcoin, there can be 30 synths minted, uh, big synth synthetic Bitcoin minted. Um, does how do you feel about like how pushing that number higher? Is there a number that makes sense and does that change when protocol owned liquidity becomes active? Uh,
0: yes, so. Um, like I mentioned before, the higher that synth utilization is, the, the more leveraged position the LPs would be taking, right? Um, and you really can't, I mean, you could, but you don't really want to, to enable the POL to start providing liquidity uh, to these pools below 50% utilization. The reason why that is, is because if somebody jump, jumps in with a dollar of savings, then the POL has to dump in $2 of Rune to, to counteract that. Which means there's a dollar of buy pressure and two dollars of sell pressure on the ruin asset, which obviously we don't like that, right? At fifty percent, it's a one to one. It's like a one dollar buy pressure, one dollar of sell pressure, and it's just like they just cancel each other out. If you go further beyond that, you go to like seventy percent centralization or eighty percent or higher. Now it's like like a two to one or a three to one and in and, and buy pressure on the ruin asset versus the sell pressure, right? So. That, that's like basically how the, how the math works from a, from a high level, right? So, but once you put it at, let's just say we put the, the POL at 50% utilization, that means that, that's, that savers can basically scale as high as it wants to, all right? Because as, as more savers enters, POL adds, you know, basically an equivalent amount of value on the other side, meaning the utilization stays constant at 50%, at 50%. Even if you keep on adding more synths, the synth utilization will still get, say constant 50% because the POL is kind of adding the other side of it, right? In a matter of speaking. You can do this forever until you get to the point where you hit the hard caps of the of the network, the security of the network, right? Which is some number. But like the PUL will allow the, net, the 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 synths to scale as f- far high as they would like to up until that hard cap.
1: Right. And so if synths are 50% of the pool. Uh, you know, and since our effectively liability is underwritten by the pool or the LPs in the pool, was there a price change where um, there becomes a point where like the pool is effectively like insolvent, if you will, that might not be the right word, but where the, the value of the since outweighs the value that they should be redeemable for?
0: Yeah, so hypothetically, if you were to see a 4x if, it, if it's a 50% synth utilization and you were to see a 4x price change in rumors value down or at its value up, doesn't matter which direction, or 2x down and 2x up, depending on whatever, uh, at that point you would see that they, that the, the synth value and the pool value would be the same, right? Which basically means all the LPs have zero value and the synths have all of the value, and so they're they're well the synths are happy they're still happy, they have still their value. But the LPs basically have been more or less an unrealized wiped out in some sense, right? That's that's the theoretical uh, thing. Now, what would actually happen in that scenario is that the POI would just start pumping more value into the pools, and, and by doing so, LPs start regaining their value back, right? So the POI is in some sense a bodyguard to the LPs. That like as they experience losses, the POI jumps in front of them in a sense and says, "I'll take some of that 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 losses myself." In sense, to, to support the LPS, but even after, even if they left at that point where they were zero, and permanent loss protection still is still there unless it's been turned off on them. But like that would uh, would be the backstop. So in the end, it is it's not even really LPS who are backstopping the value of the LP, of these savers. It's really in the end it's going to be the reserve, which is like 170 million, which is I think like 40 something percent of the circulating of the supply of, of, of rune itself. Right. But like, even if it goes, this is kind of a fascinating thing. like, even if it goes beyond that, say, instead of a 4X price change, we saw a 6X price change. Right. Now we're like really bad. Right. Now the value of the sense is greater than the value of the pool. Right. And you might say to yourself, holy shit, we're insolvent. We have all these problems. The world's going to end, blah, blah, blah. In reality, they, actually, it doesn't actually matter as counterintuitive as that might sound. Because the network will still redeem your, your synthetic Bitcoin for one Bitcoin. Right. So as you start leaving the network and saying, Oh, my synthetic Bitcoin, I'm going to get back my layer one Bitcoin and leave, you're still getting a one to one relationship. The, the, the asset has not de pegged in this scenario. Right. Everything is still fine in that regard. And as you start to leave, you push the network back towards quote unquote solvency, even though it's never actually insolvent because the reserve is always there to provide whatever capital. It is the LP of life resort. So as long as there's enough value in the reserve, then, then the synth value then we have nothing to worry about. Even if in the pool, the cent's worth more than the pool, that actually doesn't even really matter. In the end, it's not the pool that matters, it's the reserve that matters. And the reserve is always gonna have far more than the pools because the reserve is capped, the pools are capped by the uh, security of the network, which is like 80 million room right now. So you can't get to a situation where where the pools are like 200 million in, in depth or whatever, Mathematically, it's literally impossible. So it's very, it'd be very difficult for the, for, the, for the reserve to to run out of money in that scenario.
1: Right on, okay, so that makes sense. So effectively, like, you know, let's say like the Rune asset price crashed 4x relative to uh, Bitcoin, like as that crash was happening, the protocol on liquidity would be chipping in liquidity, essentially keeping that synth utilization percentage right at 50%. So like every time it rose to 51%, fall back down to 50%. Does that make sense? Do I have that yep. right? Yep, exactly, exactly. Awesome. And, and you've been so gracious with your time. And so I, I, I do want to be respectful of that, but uh, I do want to just quickly touch on Thorfi lending. Like, is that still uh, something that the network wants to roll out? Uh, and if you could kind of give like a, just a little intro overview of what that really is.
0: Yes. Um, so we have this idea for this lending design that is very innovative and it's very experimental, it's structurally very different than everything else we've seen in the DeFi space. But because it's structured so differently, it allows us to do things that nobody else can. Right. Beyond just like the idea that we are an asset agnostic or chain agnostic DeFi protocol. So we, whatever services we launch, whether it be savers or lending or whatever, it's applicable to any asset on basically any chain, more or less. Right. So uh, the fact that it supports like layer one Bitcoin loans, that by itself is pretty gargantuan. That's a pretty major uh, advancement in DeFi that we can actually support layer one Bitcoin loans. Um, But we didn't just leave it at that because that would be too easy. Uh, We went a little further and and we we designed something structurally so different than everything else we've seen before that allows us to do a loan that is 0% interest. So you pay no interest on it. It has no liquidations. So even if your collateral drops below the value of your debt, you do not get liquidated. You can still collect your collateral at any time that you want to which is pretty amazing to think about. Uh, and then also it has no expirations as well. You don't have to pay it back within a week or a month or six months, pay it back in 30 years. I don't really give a shit. It's all fine. So like it's a lending design that is, that is unlike anything we've seen in DeFi and I we've seen in C5 slash TradFi. Like this is, this doesn't exist in TradFi either because it, it's not profitable for them because they, they're a company, they're, a private entity, they wanna make a lot of money. This is a public good network, it's a little bit different. And so we can do things that nobody else can can structurally do, which is really kind of empowering. And so this allows people to take out actual loans with their crypto and be able to live on that crypto, be able to buy things, like coffee and houses and whatever else you wanna to try, to, try not to do. Meanwhile, not needing to like be up all night long, looking at your DeFi loan that's like about to get liquidated and you're not really sure and you're stressing the fuck out about it, or the inflation, the interest rate, excuse me, is inflating all over the place. It's like, it's fluctuating like crazy to like 10, 20, 30, 40%, whatever the hell it is. And you're just paying these massive interest rates on something that like, oh crap, like I'm getting (laughs) totally screwed here. Like those loans aren't really effective at doing what they do. Like they're they're great if you wanna like, you know, leverage up your position and and do some degen kind of style things. But if you actually wanted a loan to like buy a house, like, DeFi loans are terrible for that. because They're so stressful to to, to, to to have. And like, what if you don't have more Ethereum to pump into your collateral? Then you lose all your collateral, then you get completely zeroed. And then you're just like, fuck me, this this sucks, right? And that happens to people all the time. Like, it happened to people with Terra, it happened with people with like, every lending platform that you can think of. But here it's so different. Like, you always get your collateral back. And that's really kind of revolutionary.
2: Do you see ThorChain, like you guys are clearly building products that are like really user friendly, like, like actual use cases for real people. Do you think that ThorChain will be like the backend infrastructure and user interfaces will be built on top, kind of like XdeFi wallet? Or do you think that ThorChain will build that out into the future?
0: Uh, I hope the former, because uh, I don't want to be building that out. I, I want, I want other projects and other people to be building it out. I don't think it's really needed for me to do it. Um, I know that people are building RIT UIs around like DeFi spots one X DeFi Thor Swap Thor Wallet like and there's tons of them, and even like the 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 Len, the savers product excuse me like there I know somebody who's building a, a UI just just to allow any Bitcoin wallet to deploy like like it's gonna be BitcoinSavers.com or some website I don't even know what the domain's gonna be, but like they just basically have a QR code that you generates on the site and you just like oh that's, that's you know you take your phone or whatever or your Ledger or whatever and you just like input the transaction information and Bob your uncle, right? Like, it's going to be so clean and so simple that like, hopefully, ThorChain just kind of fades away into the background. And, and and most people using it have no idea it even exists, right? That's part of the goal. Like, with dex segregation I was talking about earlier, how people are just swapping between, you know, different chains, different assets. They don't know they're touching ThorChain. All they don't know, they're know they using Uniswap CY to get some Bitcoin, but they don't know that ThorChain is, is, is powering that entire system, right? And Trust Wallet just launched their integration the other day. People are going to Trust Wallet and they're swapping Bitcoin for Ethereum, for example. They have no idea that ThorChain is powering that entire thing, but it is, right? And so, like, ThorChain has become this, like, critical uh, pillar of infrastructure that exists for the entire cryptocurrency space that nobody even knows exists. <laughs> <laughs>
2: gonna be insane yeah that's that's super exciting i can't wait to watch how it all plays out but thank you so much for coming on chad we'll let you get to it um do you want to like tell people where they can find you real quick
0: i mean you can find me on twitter if you want to i'm pretty boring though know? there's the thor channel twitter account which you can follow that and there's a group of people in the community but like um, yeah, just learn more, read more, ask questions, jump in our Discord, right? Uh, the more you learn about this product and, and this protocol and what we're doing and how we're accomplishing these things, I think the more people are going to love
2: awesome. it. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll have you on again in the future and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Sam.